Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. Welcome back. Today we are recording episode 130. Before we start, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast. It's called A Gift from Adversity. And this book was published in 2020. The subtitle of this book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. After I published this book, I got a lot of requests, messages from all over the world, uh, basically sharing a lot of challenges that people were going through. I decided to create a podcast and platform where people feel safe to talk about these adversities, but not only that, to share the tools that they use to overcome and a gift that came from it. And I'm very grateful to have so many wonderful guests from all over the world. And today we reached 130 episodes. So let's invite our guest. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's start with your name, where you're coming in from, and what you do, and if you have any social media website that you want to promote. Definitely. So I am in upstate New York, Rochester, New York, and I am by day, I am a certified uh, life coach. I am an HR professional. I currently work for a nonprofit. I'm also a 13-time um, published author. Six of those books have been bestsellers. I'm also a podcaster. And my social media, my website is MarianneRiveraDannert.com. Just like my name says, but no hyphen. So it's M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-R-I-V-E-R-A-D-A-N-N-E-R-T.com. And my podcast is Fearless Fridays with Marianne, and it comes out every Friday. Can't hear you. So your name is Marianne Rivera, Marianne. Yes. Perfect. So thank you so much for um, coming in today. So let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience, what was your adversity? So it started, so I have unfortunately experienced various types of adversity and it started when I was a child. I suffered, um, I was a victim of sexual abuse at a young age. From there, things happened, turned into a juvenile delinquent. So I have also been, um, as a teenager, I was in the juvenile delinquent system in group homes, detention centers, runaway, high school dropouts, eventually um, experienced domestic violence. And those are some of the traumas that I have experienced. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Let's dive into the beginning. Do you remember what age you were when you were having this sexual abuse that occurred to you? And I'm very sorry that happened to you too. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I don't recall the exact age, but I do know that I was under the age of eight. And the only reason why I remember that is because it occurred when I was living in Puerto Rico. And when we lived in Puerto Rico, I was between the age of, I want to say 
three and about nine or so. But the area of where I was located in Puerto Rico is where the abuse happened. And I actually had blocked it out until I was older. So why were you in Puerto Rico? So um, I am Puerto Rican. <laughs> so I was born in New York City and then we left. We relocated to Puerto Rico and then years later ended up relocating back to um, New York. But now I'm in upstate New York. So you say you blocked out that memory, but do you recall who might it be? Maybe a family member or a complete stranger? I do know who it was. Um, not really sure why I blocked it out. It was probably because of the threats that had occurred. And I have not disclosed to anyone other than my therapist and to my husband who the individual was, but I do know who the individual was. And how many times did it happen? Was it like reoccurring or just one time? I think from the recollections, it happened a few times. I'm not exactly sure of the amount of time, but it was several times that it occurred. It wasn't a one-time event. Now, my question to you is, did you tell anybody right away when it happened or you just kept it all the way till adulthood? I actually kept it all the way through I was a teenager. So the, one of the times that I ended up in the juvenile um, detention centers, I was seeing a psychiatrist. And in those conversations, the different questions that the therapist was asking, um, memory started just coming black, coming back to me. And she just kept on digging deeper and then like more flashbacks started happening. And that was the first time that I actually disclosed it. And from that moment on, I actually didn't talk about it again till years later. I want to say it was probably maybe close to a decade. So about 10 years later that I disclosed it to an individual and it was kind of like thrown in my face. Like I was the guilty one that I did something wrong. So that just started a whole cycle of depression and suicide attempts and things like that. And then once again, I just kept quiet. Didn't talk about it till again years later. So let me understand. Um, did you talk to, confront the perpetrator? No, never. So you mentioned it to somebody else that didn't do anything to you, but that person didn't believe you and then kind of made you look like you are the bad one? Um, no, he believed me. Um, he believed what I said. It was actually my ex-husband. Um, he believed me, but it was that relationship, that marriage was an unhealthy marriage. Um, later on, it turned out to be. And we just did not see eye to eye in a lot of things. So it was kind of like mentally abusive, a lot of narcissistic behavior. Um, so there were times that, you know, he wanted to be intimate and I just did not want to be in the mood. And he would throw in my face, you know, and say things like, you know, you didn't want to do anything with me, but you did something with someone else and things like that. That is messed up. Yeah, very. Yeah. That is unacceptable. Yeah. So back to 
when the sexual abuse happened in Puerto Rico, is there any social workers? Is there any support system that you could recall if you were to maybe disclose or not at all? Um, I'm sure there there are, you know, social workers. But again, I was a child. I was, you know, under the age of eight. And again, the individual was making threats like, oh, if you tell no one is going to believe you because I'm so-and-so, they're going to believe me. You know, you shouldn't be out here playing by yourself. You know, you should be in the house playing with, you know, your little friends, you know. But then the reason why it happened, again, because it was a trusted individual. It was a trusted individual that was known to the family. And it was like, oh, we're playing a game. But then it was don't make sure that you don't tell anyone because this is our secret. And then, you know, it happened again. And I'm not really sure when and how or why the threats started happening. I never put two and two together. And again, I just shut everything down and just didn't think about it. A lot of sexual abuse tactics are like that. It's trusted, trusted individuals. And then my case was my father and then two uncles. Mm. I lived with them from age eight to 13 and they made it like a game. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know it was, I didn't even know it was sexual abuse until I was 22. When I was educated, when I came to America and the guidance counselor told me, what you experience is blah, blah, blah. And then there's thing called PTSD. And I'm like, what's that? And that's, how manipulative the sexual abuse could be where it's actually a huge crime that you can go to state prison for maybe 25 to life that people can get away with it because they do it to children and they do it to um, innocent people that can't speak out and then they know that and they take advantage of it. Talk to me about um, how you, if you don't mind, how you got ended up in a detention program and at what age and why, what happened? So I was a teenager. I want to say it probably was around the age of 14 and a half, 15, that I first got, started getting in trouble, um, running away from home, didn't want to be home felt like I didn't belong doing things that I should not have been doing, not going to school, not following through going to school, skipping school. And my mother um, took me, she called the system, I guess the courts and here, I'm not sure in other places, but here in Rochester, New York, it's what's called pins petition. So it's um, parent in need of supervision or people in need of supervision, something like that. So basically, you know, they give you guidelines, rules, you support curfew, you have to be home, you have to go to school, you have to respect. I was not doing any of that because I felt that I didn't belong at home. So I started running away, hanging out with my friends, started drinking, started smoking and violating the rules that they were giving me. So I was not going to school. So I got violated and they put me in a detention center. From there, I ran away several times, um, numerous times. So I was in the juvenile delinquent system for about, I want to say two years. 
And then finally it was, I was almost 17 years old and they're like, well, you know, if you keep getting in trouble, your life, you're going to end up in jail. So that kind of like woke me up. I knew I couldn't go back to um, the city schools because I knew I was not going to stay. I was going to keep, you know, not going to school. So I ended up getting my GED and then I ended up getting released and became an adult. So my background is we, um, I started a nonprofit when I was 26 years old. I'm 47. And um, I ran a nonprofit for 12 years, teaching music to juvenile, uh, juvenile offenders in Massachusetts. Mm. We only did with, uh, we taught music and then ran the program for 12 years with the boys facilities. And I never went to the girls facility. I think I went once. I was told the girls' facilities are harder than the boys, actually. So I was kind of warned. So how was it, how was it like to be in maybe tougher situation the boys' detention program? So I was in various um, detention centers. The first one that I remember being in, it was, you know, it was kind of like a house. I remember that you had to take off your shoes when you walked in. Again, they had rules and things like that that you had to abide by. I could just take my shoes and walk out the door and be gone for weeks. So from that one, they put me in one that was a little bit more secure and further away so I could stop running away. But the cycle just continued for, again, for about two years. I just kept on running away until eventually the one that they did put me in that I did not run away from was three hours away from home. They had barbed wire fences. Again, it was in the middle of nowhere, three hours away. And I'm like, yep, I'm not running away from here. I'm getting older. It's time to, you know, wise up and change my behavior because I don't want to continue down this way. And then that's when finally things started, you know, changing for me. You mean in the detention program that you kind of started changing your attitude? Yes. Yeah. Towards the end. Yeah. How was the relationship with other girls? Oh, I never had a problem. I just went in and, you know, listened, you know, to the, you know, the officers, to the workers, but my issue was that I just could not stay still. So I kept on running away from home because I didn't want to be, I mean, running away from the detention centers because I didn't want to be there. But then again, from that last one, I did not run away from because it was far, number one. And number two, you couldn't jump the fence because they had the bob wires, you know, on, on top. Yeah. So you didn't get like attacked or bullied from other girls? No, no, not when I was in juvenile uh, detention centers, no. Yeah, that's, I've witnessed a lot of violence between the boys um, when I was teaching, like, you know, jumping and like towards the staff, towards the boys. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, I've, I've seen the violence. Yeah, so, I've seen it also, but I was never a part of it. I just tried to stay to myself because I didn't want to have additional time added to what was already given to me. And I was like, no, I, I have to get out of here. <laughs> a lot of times that what I witnessed was all these kids who were put in there um, had so much stories, so much 
backstories that nobody want to listen to. And when we were teaching music, it's in my book as well, A Gift from Adversity. I had a kid who was like shaking mm. and um, we were trying to teach piano. And he started to tell me the story that his father got shot when he was five. Wow. Witnessed it, became like a father figure at such an early age to his sister who got mm. attacked in a neighbor. He tried to protect her, punched the individual that attacked his sister and ended up breaking that kid's rib cage and got arrested. Mm. So he was like shaking and then upset, yeah. obviously. So I actually wrote a song for him to, you know, encourage him to keep it going. When you see these children in the detention program, a lot of mis misconception is labeled and the biases are they are troubled kids, obviously, and they're criminals, and then nobody wanna listen to you. Yeah. But your case is obviously there was a root cause, which was the sexual abuse that you had experienced and then threat as an eight years old, innocent girl, I can't. Yeah. Well, I can imagine I I am the victim. I am right. the part of the me too. And like, do you recall the frustration like of the sexual abuse? that kind of led to um, your behavior that nobody interpreted for you, nobody advocated for you yeah. because of that. Definitely. I can't, I can't say this word but yeah. um, that I have in my mind, but, you know, this um, MF sex threat and, you know, just, it's unfair yeah. and, what you had experienced and experienced in life later too. That's so unfair. Do you recall those kind of like anger, frustration, like unfairness? Can you tell us about that? Yes, definitely. So I think just, you know, my opinion, um, the way I see things is that individuals, male or females, that experience any form of, you know, sexual abuse at a young age, either become abusers themselves, they become promiscuous because they're afraid of saying no, because they said no once and no one listened and things still happened, or they become very isolated. I think for me, my issue, I was very promiscuous because I was afraid of saying no, because when I try saying no when I was younger, the violation still happened. And although I kind of blocked it off, you know, I think deep down my subconscious still remembered what had happened. My body still hold that, held on to that trauma. So as a teenager, I was very promiscuous. Um, and I think that's why I started also experimenting with drugs and alcohol to numb the pain. And then why I felt that I didn't belong at home because my mom didn't understand what was going on. Um, my biological father wasn't in the picture. I didn't really feel connected to my stepfather because he was not my biological father. So I think that all of that played a role into it most definitely. And I think as I got older and started getting help 
and started opening up is when things started to shift for me. There was a time that I think now, 2024, I am more vocal about it and more open to talking about it, but it wasn't until 2022 that I started talking about it. Prior to that, I hadn't I only had only shared it with maybe five individuals total. So never like podcast? No, not prior to 2022. After 2022. What shifted to you? Like on 2022? So in 2022, there was um, a visionary author that put a book together called Surviving Her, Finding Hope Beyond the Pain. And it was all about sexual traumas or any um, form of physical trauma that had occurred. And I felt led to say yes to being a part of that book and sharing my story. So I wrote the chapter and I kept on saying, I need to call my father, my biological father. And I need to tell him what happened to me because his wife supports what I do. So she buys my books. And she's going to tell him and I cannot have him find out from a book what happened to me. So it was during the time that one of the hurricanes, I can't remember which hurricane it was, occurred in Puerto Rico. And I was going to go to Puerto Rico so I can talk to my father because I wanted to have this conversation face to face. But because of the hurricane, I couldn't travel. So I actually had to call him and tell him I have something to tell you that happened when I was younger, living in Puerto Rico. And the reason why I'm telling you is because I wrote about it in the book. And I know that your wife is going to buy the book. And I don't want you to find out from a book what happened. So I told him and he became silent. He said, I have to call you back. We hung up the phone. He called me back a couple of hours later, crying and apologizing, asking for my forgiveness, saying, you know, he apologized for not noticing, you know, that my behavior might have changed. Um, Because again, I wasn't raised with him. But when I lived in Puerto Rico, he would pick me up and I would spend, you know, vacations and the weekends with him. He said, I should have paid more attention to you. I should have noticed that something had happened to you. I should have talked to you about was healthy behavior, was healthy touching. I should have asked you questions. I should have been there for you. So I'm sorry. He asked for my forgiveness. Then I broke down and started crying also. And then the book came out. And actually the title of my chapter in that book is a letter to my father, because I wrote the story as I'm disclosing it to him what occurred. Did he read it? He did. What did he, he say? Did. He did. Yeah. Again, he just kept on apologizing. Even to this day, two years later, he still, you know, apologizes, you know, whenever we talk for not being there and not noticing. Has he confronted the guy? Oh, he doesn't know the individual. No one in my family knows who the individual is. So that's when you started to tell people. Yes. Publicly. Like I'm a stranger to you and this is a podcast that yeah. I have I have a good followers mm-hmm. and probably 
some people that we may even not know will be listening to your story. Yeah. But one thing I can tell you is that um, one of the chapter that I talk about um, counseling, my first counselor was also a victim of sexual abuse oh, wow. from her uncle. And she said, because I had such a stigma of seeing a therapist then, she said one thing that if you have a cancer, you're not shy or embarrassed to talk about seeing a doctor right. to your friend. PTSD is the chemical shift in your brain between the adrenaline and the synadrine that it basically triggers the sexual abuse in your brain. It plays back again and again, and I scream. And I'm sure you can relate. So why would you be... So also the, the, the way that we build insurance is biological not mental for the PTSD because it's a chemical shift. Yeah. I want you to know that just like you don't have any shame or seeing a doctor when you get a cancer, the PTSD is a brain chemical shift that we build as a biological disorder. So do not feel shame of coming to get treatment or, yeah. you know, moving forward because you did nothing wrong. Right. But again, those kind of things are not talked about. And I'm very impressed with what your father said about, I'm sorry that I didn't notice, you know, I didn't ask questions, I didn't teach you healthy touch and an unhealthy touch. And those are the things that even 2024, some of the school systems don't talk about it or some of the parents don't talk about it. One time I was talking to a teenager and then the mother got upset that I have disclosed some of the information. Oh, don't talk to her about it. But I have a book out. I have a podcast out. And then I believe in, okay, this is, I don't know if you can relate. Would you teach your kid that murder, homicide, or robbery a crime would you teach your young kids that it's not okay to steal right why can't you teach your children stealing your body and the vulnerability and innocence is a crime yeah, yeah. why and I, yeah and i think too in some you know in some cultures it's taboo to talk about that and when you finally open up to talk about it you find out that your mother was also abused, your grandmother, your aunt, sister, cousin, niece, possibly even, you know, the males, your uncle, your father, grandfather might have also been abused. And I think that that's why some cultures don't talk about it. And for me, that's why I am so thankful that the visionary Kathy decided to do the book that she did, Surviving Her, that allowed me to open up because I started again thinking if they happened to me and I kept quiet, how many other young ladies are suffering in silence? 
how many other individuals, you know, feel that they don't belong or are experimenting with sex, drugs, alcohol, getting involved with the wrong individuals, lack self, you know, lack a positive self-esteem because of the brokenness that they experience. So I think once I wrote that chapter and shared that part of my story, is why I'm more vocal about it and more open to talk about it now. Because if some, if just one person can relate, if just one person can say, I've noticed that little Susie used to always play and she was so excited. And now all of a sudden she's quiet or she doesn't want to go to so-and-so's house or she doesn't want to go play with so-and-so anymore. Something may be wrong here. So let me start asking some questions. So even if it's just one person, that's why I started doing what I do and why I continue to do it. Marianne, you mentioned about domestic violence situation later on. So um, can you tell me what happened? Yeah. So I, so thinking back again, you know, we don't know what we don't know until we start thinking back and, you know, reflecting on our lives. So my first experience with domestic violence was when I was a teenager. It wasn't physical, but it was very controlling. So it was very mental, you know, being told what I can and cannot wear, who I can and cannot hang out with, what I can and cannot do. So it was a form of being controlled. And I got away from that situation. And then I got involved with somebody who was physically abuse, abusive. We were always getting into fights, even when I was pregnant with my first son. And it was like, why, you know, this cannot continue to be happening. I cannot be with someone who has no respect for me and no respect for the child that I'm carrying. So I ended up leaving that relationship. But then again, I didn't get any help. So the cycle continued. I got involved with somebody who was financially abusive. I got involved with somebody who was a narcissist. Again, was very controlling mentally, financially, socially, you know, kept me isolated from my friends and my family. I lost a lot of um, friendships when I was in that relationship. I lost my self-esteem. I had little to no self-worth. That relationship really messed me up mentally and emotionally. And I ended up leaving. So I think in total from the beginning till I walked away from that last relationship, it was probably a period of 20, no, maybe about 17 about 17 years from beginning to end that I was in and out of various types of domestic violence relationships. And the reason why I stress the different types is because oftentimes individuals think that domestic violence is only about getting hit and violence involves mental abuse, physical, sexual there's such things as marital sexual abuse. No means no. So even if you are married, even if you are in a relationship and you say no, the individual needs to respect that. There's social abuse. So you're being kept away from your friends and your family, financial abuse. They're controlling all the finances and different forms of different types of abuse until 
I realized my self-worth and that I was important and that I needed to get out of that situation and stay away from that situation. I am extremely sorry that happened to you and that happened to me too. Hmm. And then um, I need to say everything that you said today, I I felt like I was listening to myself. Hmm. Everything that you said um i i did not get locked up luckily i was in japan where we didn't have much of drugs and we had alcohols but i kind of was allergic to it and then um but the sex part yes and then um self-worth um in my book i disclosed that I model and I'm in the movie and all that stuff. And then people say I look stunning or beautiful. I never felt that way because the way that I was raised by my father was I'm a whore. I'm a B-I-T-C-H and then I'm useless. I'm stupid on top of getting beaten up and then on top of being sexually abused and physically, no, mentally, verbally, whatever. So imagine that is your early childhood to teens and then how would you move on from it and then what you are comfortable with the paradigm and then comfort zone you keep thinking that this is normal and i almost feel this is not normal if the guy treats me like a princess because i've never had that in my life so it's almost like a craving for um emergency situation and then be painting to basically cope but in very unhealthy unhealthy way but you don't know that until you like really get help whatever but it's i understand why you kept going through this cycle and then attracting this domestic violence situation abusive situation that because of you were sexually abused yeah. when you were eight years old. How do you shift? How do you understand when I was a kid? Like, how do you understand that when somebody is co- like manipulating and then threatening and then taking advantage of you, that is your norm. That is your standard of human being interaction. So how 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 can you teach me otherwise other ways? Yeah. So I guess for me, again, therapy has played a role. Um, being more open and talking to different individuals. I didn't start. I haven't been very consistent with therapy, but I have done therapy before. And I guess that the, my friends, the circle, the people, my support system, the people that I surround myself with are very, you know, trustworthy individuals that I am very open with. And we bounce ideas off of each other. I read a lot of books. And for me, writing is very therapeutic and very healing. So I have been a part of 13 different anthologies. So I write, I have shared different parts of my story in the different um, works that I have done. And writing to me is very healing. And I think that one of the things that is very important is to just recognize it doesn't matter at what age the abuse has happened. 
that you were not at fault. I think it's just recognizing that very first thing that love does not hurt, that your body is your body. You have a right to protect your body. You have a right to say no. There are people out there that have been put placed in on this earth to protect you, whether it's police, the court system, therapists, hotlines. There are individuals out there that are able to help. Sometimes you don't know where to turn to. So even if it's just one person that they can reach out to, they can send you, you know, an email or a message saying, I need help. They can send me a message saying, I need help. I don't know what to do. This is what's going on. Um, and again, that's just why I continue to, you know, share different parts of what has happened to me. Sure. So that's kind of my second question, but let's just move on to the second question, which was the tools that you use to yeah. overcome. So you kind of mentioned it a lot, but this is uh, by far my favorite part of the podcast. And I'm very happy that I continued this podcast because somebody like yourself and myself who went through hell and then who were violated unfairly, very unfair situations that we have to endure. People don't understand the magnitude of trauma that they would just like say, oh, go see your therapist, you're gonna be fine. No, it's not like that at all. So, and sometimes therapists are horrible. I had a therapist fell asleep on me I had a therapist who told me it's okay to punch somebody. I had a therapist who was yawning, who was like, don't remember anything. And they awful things to me too. Yeah. So I had bad ones. So this is my favorite part because people who came on my show, they went through so many different adversities, but they came up with some unique ideas that you can combat these adversities. So you mentioned some but what are the things that really got you out of this and then what are the tools that you used that truly worked for you so in addition to the therapy and reading the books and having a support system meditation journaling has helped for me i guess kind of also connecting with individuals that have experienced some of the same things that I have because I'm able to relate to them. They're able to relate to me and just being more open. And again, it just goes to me, it goes back to, again, understanding and realizing and accepting that you were not at fault, that you were violated and just start to implement healthy coping mechanisms. So, you know, going for a walk, spending a lot of time in nature because, you know, being outside, you know, in the daylight, in the sun is very healing also. And just once, just again, just continuing to just every single day, making a commitment to yourself of how you're going to love yourself and how you're going to just pour into yourself and heal that inner child. You know, again, listening to meditation music, there's a lot of meditation um, 
apps out there. And they also do a lot of like guided meditating. That has helped me a lot. There was one that I listened to several years ago and it was called Healing the Inner Child. And I listened to them when I go to sleep and I actually ended up dozing off. But then I woke myself up because I was crying while I was listening to, you know, the guided meditation. So that has definitely helped a lot. And I think because I also suffered from low self-esteem, lack of confidence. So just starting to pour into myself, realizing that I do matter, that I am a priority. I became a life coach. Um, so just different tools like that have, you know, have, have helped me heal and enabled me to be able to pour into other people. Marianne, thank you very much for sharing the tools. Now, what's the gift that came from your adversity? I think one of the greatest gifts has been the woman that I am today. Somebody who is fearless, as my shirt says, fearless. Somebody who is confident, someone who is bold, someone who is unafraid someone who knows her truth. And because of all of that, all of the things that I have encountered has allowed me to become who I am today. While I dropped out of high school when I was a teenager, I have graduated from college three times. So I have three college degrees. I, in addition to being a professional, I also have my own business. So I'm a certified life coach. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. I have my podcast. So these are some of the ways that I pay it forward and help other individuals because I want to be that person that I needed. I want to be that person for someone else, for someone else. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of individuals who feel that they're alone, that they have no one to talk to. And again, I have gotten in the past, I have gotten messages, you know, can we just talk? Can I just borrow your ear for 15 minutes and sure, what do you need to talk about? And I help that individual, guide that individual. I share tools with them, resources with them, because again, I want to be that person for someone else that I needed when I was going through what I was going through. Thank you very, very much. And then um, I appreciate you before I let you go. I want to tell you something about me that I just did a presentation about gender gap. Hmm. Okay. It was an hour talk at the Foxwood Senior Center. I had 40 slides and then I didn't really realize that the gender gap really played a role, not only my sexual abuse, but my self-esteem and then me as a woman uh, raised in Japan and then Asian culture, which we must serve men whatever right. they say they say i don't walk in front of the men and then i realized recently all these years i'm 47 i never invested time for myself i never mm -hmm. loved myself i never put myself as a priority ever because men comes first mm -hmm. yeah. and i was that's one of the that's one of the biggest lessons that i teach my clients that to prioritize themselves and it doesn't have to start big 
because just like you mentioned earlier, if you have cancer, you go see a doctor because you have cancer. So just like if you have trauma, you go see a therapist or you seek other ways to heal and, you know, fix yourself and get better. If you have a child and your child is sick, you take your child to the doctor. If you're married, if you have a spouse or someone else, an adult, you know, your parent, sister, brother, friend, and something happens to them, you, we, as women, we tend to be there for the individual and make sure that they're taken care of. We work, we come home, we take care of the house. But what about us? Who's taking care of us? So we have to learn to prioritize our self-care, ourselves, so we can be mentally, physically, emotionally better fit to take care of other people. Because if we continue to prioritize everyone else, if we continue to take care of everyone else, Eventually, we're going to get burned out, we're going to get sick, and we will cease to exist because we have not taken care of ourselves. So even if it's five minutes a day, start small. Start small, do something every single day, and then increase it from there. Increase it to several minutes. You know, now I love going on vacation, so I go on vacations with my friends. I go out to dinner by myself sometimes. I go get my nails done. I go for a walk, exercise, and things like that. But you have to do something for yourself every single day. Do you think you can give advice in Spanish? Yes. So, so para la persona... Oh, <laughs> Before you start, I'm going to make a quick reel. Um, so this is for the Spanish audience that if especially the people in different countries that uh, sexual abuse is not talked about and then how it's not, like it's taboo to still talk about, but it's not, it's a crime. So if you can say something empowering and powerful in Spanish, I would really appreciate it. Yes, definitely. So, si, tu, si usted es una persona que es víctima del de abuso sexual, por favor, busque ayuda con un terapista o un adulto que usted um, tiene confianza en esa persona. Puede ser un pastor, puede ser este, un vecino, una vecina, su, ma, su mamá, su papá, amiga, amigo, hermana. Por, pero, por favor, si usted es una víctima de cualquier forma de abuso, busque ayuda, especialmente con un, un, un terapista que pueda ayudarlo para que empiece para cuidarse usted mismo. And how about the self-care part? Y también este, asegúrase que, haga, que tenga tiempo para usted mismo. So si es levantarse temprano cinco minutos todos los días, Use esos cinco minutos para usted. Puede caminar, puede escribir en un diario, puede orar, sea lo que sea, especialmente para las mujeres, en que sea cinco minutos todos los días. Ponga ese tiempo para usted, porque si sigue poniéndose atrás y no se... y no se ayuda usted mismo, 
no puedes ayudar a otra persona. Muchas gracias. <ríe> De nada. Yeah, yo hablo uh, español un poco, so muy, muy gracias. Muchas gracias. Well, thank you very much for um, coming to a gift from adversity today, Marianne. I really appreciate you opening up and then bringing this very important issues that nobody really talks about. So I appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you to our audience. I have wonderful guests coming up. Please keep continue to listen and share. And then I hope you have a wonderful day.